Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I am so excited to introduce you to Marissa Orr. Marissa Orr is a former Google and Facebook executive, best-selling author, and leadership speaker. Spending 15 years working at today's top tech giants, she's conducted talks to thousands of people in the U.S., Europe, and Asia Pacific at companies and universities such as Google, Twitter, Pace University, New School, American Express, and more. We are going to talk about Marissa's book, Lean Out. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWell. And on this week's episode of The Leadership Habit, I am so excited to be talking to former Google and Facebook exec, leadership thought leader, author, podcast host, Marissa Orr. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's just go ahead and do that introduction. I know some people obviously heard a little bit about you from our intro, but they want to hear it from you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe what you do and what what you would want to share with the world, or I guess what mm-hmm. inspires you. Well, I was born on a warm summer day. No. Um, <laughs> uh, so I... And I worked in the corporate world for 15 years and people are sometimes surprised to hear me refer to Google and Facebook as corporate because they do kind of have this very progressive, like new wave image of companies, but um, they were very corporate, especially um, Google toward the end. So I worked there for about 15 years. And then in 2017, after leaving Facebook under extremely strange circumstances, which I detail in the book, um, I decided to start a whole new career and devote all my time to pursuing my dream of helping women and speaking and writing full time. So I now do that. I live in New Jersey with my three children. I'm a single mom. My older son is about to be 12 and my twins are 10. And I'm originally from Miami, Florida, which Right now, you know, usually the background is very um, academic looking on purpose so that people take me seriously, you know, <laughs> it's, li- it's lined with books and trees, but right now I am on a little bit of a beach vacation. So uh, it's reminding me of home. I'm in uh, the beaches of Delaware. So uh, yeah, good stuff. That sounds so lovely. For those that may not know, you wrote the book, Lean Out. Um I have really loved the book. It's something that I feel like really spoke very much to me and some of my philosophies, but what inspired you to write that book? A few things. One, I've always been very passionate about the topic of gender and women, women's issues. And so back in 2013 or 2014, around the time Lean In came out by Sheryl Sandberg, uh, it really ushered in a spate of programs, workshops, and leadership initiatives at Google that were really aimed at helping their female employees succeed. So one thing that book really deserves credit for is bringing this conversation really to the forefront of so many companies and having so many resources devoted to women in its in its wake. So that happened at Google. And I, of course, attended everything because I was super interested and passionate about this topic. But after a while, I became really kind of disenchanted, I guess is the word, because the conversations never resonated with me. I couldn't identify with the female leaders they chose to talk to us on stage. I just didn't connect with them. I felt like the challenges of being a working mom, uh, they weren't, there was, there wasn't a lot of honesty in the conversation and the advice wasn't really practical. And I just felt like we were getting something wrong. Mm -hmm. 
And so I started to write my own perspective on the topic to deliver as a presentation eventually grew and it served as the basis of lean out. But I wrote this book to make women like me feel heard and understood because I never heard anyone talk about my specific challenges or my journey. And I felt like something was maybe wrong with me. And after a while, I realized there was nothing wrong with me, but there are no voices like me talking about you know, the things that I care about or they're concerning for me. So I wrote this um, to make other women feel heard and, and understood by giving those stories and challenges a voice. The other, the other reason I wrote it, I really wrote it, I wrote the book I needed to read when I was starting out in my career because I spent the first 10 years of my career really not understanding what game I was playing. I thought it was one thing and it, and it wasn't. And it took 10 years for me to really understand what that game was. And I wish I had known that when I started, I would have played it very differently. Not because I felt like I would have played it better and gotten to the top. I would have taken it for what it was and not have invested so much of my self-worth into my work, knowing that, you know, it's just, I always felt like around a square peg in a round hole. And so I didn't know why. And I think this book really is sort of like my mea culpa and understanding the world that I was operating in. And like I said, it was the book I needed to read starting out. Yeah. I feel like it's the book that I also needed to read when I started out. I think, you know, when you're an early leader, I don't think college prepares you to consider things like emotional intelligence. You might know what it is from a textbook definition, but you don't really know what it is as it relates to politics or your your own executive presence or mm-hmm. when you can speak or not speak as a as you know in relation to that culture. And I think why your book resonated so much with me is my first job out of college was a position at a huge corporation, and I would say it offer it operated. I mean, it was a huge company, like the corporate culture, but if you went against the grain, if you didn't fit their mold, then you were kind of deemed an outcast. And it felt like the worst feeling, especially for being such an ambitious person and wanting to do these things. But I I felt like, I mean, I give you an example from mine and I know our listeners have heard this before, but I got feedback that I needed to be more of a yes man. <laughs> that's, you know, I, that that's actually was... surprising. They were so honest with you about that because a lot of times, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Cause a lot of times people get dinged for that, but it's not said as honestly as that. Cause you know, you've got to fall in line. That's the structure of the organization. Oh my gosh. But it's, we know, we know today there just aren't enough voices, I think. And I think we're seeing more, like more voices come in and talk about this different perspective, this different way to really create an inclusive culture. But I still think we, you know, we kind of just tend to go with the flow, like, oh, mm-hmm. this is what it's supposed to look like. So I'm just going to follow these rules instead yeah. of saying, should we look at changing the rules? Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about a few different chapters from your book, Lean Out. And, you know, you hit the first one and this is where we're going into, cha- we're talking about chapter three in the confidence gap, which you even touched on it briefly, how we attach our self-worth based on the title that we have, the organization that, and the prestige of that organization that we work mm-hmm. for. But let's talk a little bit about the confidence gap, because this is something that even on our show, The Leadership Habit, we don't necessarily always bring it back to self-worth, even though it's incredibly essential to how you're going to lead your organization, mm-hmm. your team, and yourself. Yeah. So this, the chapter that you're talking about really debunks the myth that men get ahead at work 
because they're more confident than women. And I feel like the conversation is changing because I feel like saying that today is actually a little more provocative than it used to be. Even it was kind of accepted, you know, following lean in and, and the, the, the conventional wisdom of the day, men having more confidence in women wasn't seen as something provocative to say, but um, now maybe that's changing. But anyway, I really debunked the myth in that chapter by explaining, like starting with what is confidence really, right? Because when we, a lot of these, right, uh, these uh, authors or speakers or executives that make that claim, because a lot of researchers do as well, when they make the claim that men have more confidence, they really um, aren't defining confidence very clearly. And it actually seems that their version of confidence is the ability to um, think you're, or it's really thinking that you're great. When you think you're, for example, so they, they refer to research that showed that men and women were given a test on scientific reasoning. And before the test, they were each asked, what do you think you're, how many do you think you're going to get right? And the women, let's say, I don't remember the exact numbers, but you'll get the gist of what I'm trying to say. Let's say women said, I think I'll get six right. And men said, oh, I think I'll get eight right. And it turned out that they, you know, on average, all got seven right or something. And they use that as evidence to say that women are less confident, that we should be more confident in ourselves. But actually, that's not confidence is at all. First of all, they use research that focuses on these really specific themes like scientific reasoning, right? Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I would put myself worse on scientific research, change the topic, and I, you know, more quote-unquote confidence. But that's a whole other issue. The real Wait, issue is you say that? Conf- Hold on. We lost you for a little bit there. Oh, sorry. No, and no worries. And do you have a pen in your hand? Oh, do I keep clicking it? <laughs> I like notice that. Like, I am such a, a thank you. Thank <laughs> you for calling that out. I'm such a fidgeter. I no. just put it down and I clasped my hands tightly in my lap. <laughs> it is the hardest thing, I think, to, I mean, knowing that you have them. I always have, I have a little mic like this and sometimes I grab it, but that will create. <laughs> I know. Stuff, so I always have just never know. I'm just going to make it. Thank up. you. And I'm not in my office. So that's a whole other. Um, okay. So I will back up a tiny bit, but the point really I was making is that the definition of confidence is really having a realistic assessment of yourself. doesn't mean it should be overly inflated and it shouldn't, doesn't mean it should be, um, lower than what you actually are. It's an honest relationship to reality and an honest relationship with your strengths and weaknesses. In other words, it's a lot about self-awareness. And when we're aware of what we're good at and what we're bad at, and we can own our strengths and own our weaknesses without having this insecurity to try and you know make up for them, that's really rock hard, solid confidence. And when we say men have more, what we're really mistaking is the arrogance and bravado for confidence. So that is not something I think that we should be holding up as a value in society because overconfidence. And th- th- it's confusing because overconfidence and confidence are not exact. It's, it, the wording is, is really confusing. But overconfidence is this tendency to be blind to reality and think that you're amazing and the best. And when you have that sort of attitude, you're the person that's always talking in meetings. You have to talk over everybody else. It's it's bluster, it's bravado, and it actually stems from insecurity 
in the same way that somebody who's overly timid and doesn't own all the great things about them and always trying to cut themselves down to make others look, you know, that's also a result of insecurity. So bravado and sort of this um, inferiority, they both stem from insecurity. They just manifest in these different behaviors. True confidence is really owning who you are. And that's really the definition. And as far as I know, I did so much research. There are no studies. There is no research that using that definition shows that men are in any way more confident than women. The problem is in the corporate world, we reward bravado. We reward arrogance. We reward these behaviors and then call them confidence when that's not at all what they are. Gosh, I think it, it sounds like almost the the reliance on the notion that perception is reality. If you yeah. look like you are the part wearing the nice attire or you drive in the, you drive the fancy car or you have X, Y, Z that you have what it takes. To yeah. It's image, <laughs> it's image and perception. And look, that's the way that world works. I'm not taking sort of a moral position on it. What I'm saying is let's just all be honest about what that world requires of people in order to advance instead of pretending that, you know, it's a meritocracy where the, you know, the best employees, the highest performers are the ones that, you know, get promoted and that this world works in any sort of rational way or that what should happen does happen. It doesn't. It's a, it's, you know, and again, I'm very passionate about this. I can go on forever. So I'm not taking, I just want to make the point. I'm not saying, oh, from a moral standpoint, it's wrong that, you know, bravado is rewarded. I'm just pointing out that we're not honest about that. Yeah. And that we need to also look at ourselves instead of maybe comparing ourselves to that bravado and using that as an aspirational goal. Exactly. We're looking at ourselves to say, what value can I bring to this? Right. And, And my problem is always that we take these traits like, you know, bluster and hold it up as a benchmark and say, well, when you act like this, you get promoted. Well, that doesn't mean that we should act that way. And everybody has to make that decision for themselves, of course. But, um, you know, the benchmarks were just, they made no sense to me. We were holding up like certain qualities and values that, um, I don't know, they, they were just never me. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's actually not a lot of people. I think we never felt like we could actually share that though, because if I speak from my own, my own experience, it was always kind of, I think the comfort that I got in terms of being a young person in the corporate culture is that using that did help me, you know, Mm -hmm. determine my roadmap. It helped me determine my career trajectory. It was, you know, that was the aspirational goal. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it was also there's so much into that, that it's not really attainable because so much of it is rooted in, in that perception versus it's not, you know, whether or not you're adding value, it's kind of Mm -hmm. the the pump and circumstance of it. Yeah. And if that, if that appeals to someone like more power to you, you know, I just was thinking that it was the game was something it wasn't. And had I known that that's what gets rewarded and that's what makes you a manager Maybe I would have played the game differently. So, yeah. But we have to note for like our leaders here, it's got to start with you. You seeing your value, you understanding mm-hmm. how or what you bring to the table, and also the areas that you can ask for support. We're so yeah. 
you know, I think in that same type of culture, you then feel like you have to do it all and you can't do that either. That just Mm -hmm. further like creates a gap in your own confidence. Exactly. So in chapter seven, you know, you're talking about in lean out, you're talking about the power reward and it kind of based on the notion that we want to get promoted or we have these aspirational goals because we're seeking positions of power and tell me more about that. Like where, what inspired you to say that and kind of debunk that notion that that's what everyone wants. Yeah. So it started, I start that chapter with the story about a personality test that I did in an offsite at Google. And we all were given like one of four colors to represent the one of the four major personality types. And I was a green, which meant that I have a strong drive for harmony. I prioritize, um, I have a a strong drive to help people. I strive for harmony and I prioritize my relationships. And the opposite of green, by the way, because it was like a very hippie one, they called it like earth green. And then opposite was red, which they called fiery red. Reds are competitive. They strive for power and control and they prioritize results over greens like me who prioritize relationships. And then when they asked us to get in groups by color, this question, I just blurted out loud, truly it was, ended up being a tremendous insight for me on this journey to understand what's going on at work. I asked, what are the colors of our senior executive team? And the HR person running the exercise, like she didn't want to answer it, but then everyone's so curious. And it turned out nine out of 10 were obviously, what do you think? Red or green? I mean, I'm a green, so absolutely not a green. Yeah, it's they were red. So nine <laughs> out of 10 were red. And then like the 10th was like yellow or something or whatever. And it was a tremendous insight for me at the time around motivation because, you know, what is the reward at work? Well, every every raise that you get incrementally becomes less satisfying because it's a smaller percentage of your base. So a 25K raise when you're making 50K a year is life-changing, right? right. But if you're making 250K, it's hardly like the thing that's pushing you to work harder and harder. And so many people in the corporate world like are very comfortable. They don't need more money. So like, what, what motivates people to want to get to the top, keep climbing, pushing you every day to work hard? Well, what comes with the promotion? Money and power, more power over more people in the form of being a manager, right? Now, if you're a green like me, having formal authority over people, people like that is not only unsatisfying, it can be uncomfortable because authority and relationships are in tension with each other and everybody's more motivated by one or the other. So the example I always use is let's say you're on a team with two of your best friends and you've been on this team together for years and then suddenly you're promoted to be their manager. And let's say you like flex that position of authority, you know, you're like, I'm the boss lady now, blah, blah, blah. What happens to your relationships? They suffer, right? But what happens if you act like nothing's changed? You're still their best buddy. You know, you're talking crap about your coworkers with them. Not that I would ever do that, but I'm just, you know, saying, (laughs) Um, well, what happens in that case? Your authority is undermined. And that's what I mean by relationships and authority are in tension with each other. And everyone's more motivated by one than the other. Now, the issue I'd been confronting in my career at Google at the time was Um, I was an individual contributor by choice. And in order to get promoted to the next level, I had to start managing people. And I, I didn't, I just didn't want to be a manager. I really didn't, but I was, I didn't, I don't want to be honest about that with my manager because I knew it would be seen as like Marissa lacks ambition or, you know, I wouldn't be taken as seriously, but through the lens of color, suddenly I totally understood this in a brand new way, which was 
I mean, I'm just simply not motivated by positions of authority. I'm more motivated by creating connections, relationships. Like I always wanted to be a coach or a mentor, but never an official manager. So I was pretty naive. I brought this new insight to my manager thinking, oh, she'll totally like understand that this is an issue with Google, not me. Like they should, I mean, everybody likes different things. This is something we learn in kindergarten and we teach our kids. So naturally she'll understand that and not, you know, that management will be more of a punishment than a reward and I'll get exempted from this policy. That was my thought. And she was great about it, but she said that despite having heard all these arguments before our VP was like adamant about the fact that you needed to manage people to grow your career. Now, when that happened, I was really dumbfounded. I was like, why wouldn't they want to keep their best performers and keep them happy and motivated by giving them something they actually want instead of something they don't want? But with time and experience, I, I really started to understand and learn what no business book ever told me. And that is what I saw as a simple difference in personality, other people saw as weakness. And it was a huge insight. It just never occurred to me that that's how, that that's why the perception is what it is. It's viewed as weakness. And a lot of people think, you know, will ask me, how did you not like know that it's just, you know, better late than never. It just took me a while to understand how other people looked at these things. And, you know, it really kind of taught me that, I mean, it was very obvious working in the corporate world that a certain kind of person is the person that advances to the top. It's, it's a real narrow profile of personality traits. You don't see, you know, hippies as the corporate CEOs. There's just, you just don't, you don't see it, but it doesn't mean that I lacked ambition. And that was really the point I was making in the power reward, which is relationships are a huge form of power in this world. I mean, um, I, and I go into this whole thing about bonobos, which are female dominated societies and, and their primates and they, their, their currency is relationships. Whereas like apes, which are uh, chimpanzees, which are male dominated, their currency is, is brute strength. So my point is both are a form of power. And if um, you're more motivated by relationships, this doesn't mean that you can have any less of an impact in this world. It just manifests differently. And I think a lot of women, um, it, this helped, this frame, this framework helped a lot of women understand themselves better. And at least that's what the, you know, the messages I get. So that hopefully that was a long winded explanation, but it's worth, it's worth giving the details to really fully understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. No, I think that this is such an important thing that's a topic that's not talked about very often because it is so accepted to say your natural career trajectory should include leading a team. And then you have organizations that say this is the expectation for that. But in the era, in the era today where I think many companies are really facing that talent scarcity where they can't get the right people why do you, why risk losing them to what you said? Like why risk losing them by forcing something that's not in alignment with their values or their personality or their aspirations? And Mm -hmm. they can still have that. But I think you're bringing up a really strong conversation that actually needs to happen in many organizations because they, they're in some way by having that expectation that people need to do that. They're then not respecting the art of leadership that, Mm -hmm. that actually is a really difficult skill set that not everyone is very communicative or empathetic or meant to be a great leader. And, but they could be a lovely like individual contributor. Yeah. 
Well, there's a difference between leader and manager too. And I think we've conflated those terms to the point where, I mean, we use them synonymously, but they're not. Um, the winners of the corporate game are the ones who play that game best. doesn't mean that they're leaders in the way that we think of like a Martin Luther King as a leader, right? He, he didn't have anyone. He, he wasn't a leader because everybody followed him because they worked for him, right? They chose to follow him because he painted a vision that they felt passionate about following. And that is hardly the job of a manager these days. So I think that it's important to make that distinction. There's that millions of managers, but few of them are true leaders. Right. And we need to acknowledge that and start making that, you know, really owning that differentiation and training people appropriately Mm -hmm. with respect to that differentiation. Hi, everyone. It's Jen Dewall, and I just wanted to drop in with a quick note. Do your managers know how to build an effective team? Can they create an environment where teamwork is encouraged while setting appropriate benchmarks and delivering projects on time? Are they able to align expectations so their team works effectively toward common goals? You hired the right team. Now let us help you develop them. Crosscom offers a robust leadership development program that focuses on results. Each month, participants learn and apply key leadership skills and tools that will unite teams and drive organizational growth. We are serious about accountability. After each class, we help participants apply those leadership skills in group coaching sessions. Are you ready to take your leadership development to the next level? Contact us at crosscom.com so we can help you develop your leaders. And now back to our podcast. Let's go into chapter eight. It's the system. Stupid. Tell us what, <laughs> I love that name. I, I again, love your book because it's just so, the language that you use and how you describe these concepts really are, I know we talked about this, that I feel like you could be my best friend. Um, <laughs> I, I do, I do align with the, the corporate rebel or wanting to see things different and wanting to kind of push the status quo. So let's talk about it's the system, stupid. And then you well, can I respond also... to whether or not we'll be best friends after this. <laughs> the, the best friend necklace is in the mail. It's on its way. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I tried to maintain a lot of um, a reverence and, and not take myself too seriously with this book. So I do tell a lot of stories that um, they're just real and people relate to them. And um, I think that's why it was easier to get a bit of a more provocative message across uh, because it's just imminently relatable. Um, so it's the system, stupid. So that's my explanation for that chapter title. Uh, <laughs> so at the end of the day, the real difference, well, there's so many differences, but one core difference between lean in, lean out in that perspective is lean in really um, blames stereotypes and, and culture for the lack of women at the top of corporate America. and it, you know, it sort of is built on this premise that women are oppressed by culture and stereotypes. And if, you know, we weren't, we would be at the top as well. Whereas lean out, the perspective is really that, um, this is not a women problem. It's not a female problem. It's a systems problem. Like women are not broken. The system is broken. And what I mean by that is the, the, um, so I'll give you an example. Research shows that women prefer and perform better in collaborative work environments, whereas men prefer and perform better in zero-sum competitive work environments. And work is a zero-sum game. By its nature, is that triangle is the corporate hierarchy. You win a promotion, I lose a promotion. At Google and Facebook, we were ranked relative to each other. 
you're either you have to be either better or worse than your your coworker. You can't be equally great or equally terrible. And so, really, a lot of it was um, just this cutthroat competition. And the reason we use this structure is not because it's inherently better than anything else. It was designed a few hundred years ago by a man in the industrial age. And if you're Rockefeller or whoever, you know, for, uh, you know, the history piece is, is, (laughs) the details aren't as um, familiar to me, but if you're a titan of that era and you're trying to design an organization, it was the really first time in this country we had to organize hundreds and hundreds of workers around these business goals and production. Naturally, if you're a dude that like loves competition, you're going to set it up as a competition, thinking that that's the way to get the best um, performers to rise to the top. But it's been a few hundred years. And since then, the entire fabric of our economy is transformed. We're not a production economy anymore. And the composition of the workforce is completely different. You know, it's half women at the entry level. And yet these systems are the only things that have remained exactly the same. Not one thing has changed, even though everything around it has. And so what makes more sense, like rewiring women's personalities to conform to this outdated system or rewiring the system to better meet their needs. So that's really what I mean by, oh, it's, you know, the system's stupid, but I, you know, I follow and I go into a whole chapter on all the changes that would be necessary at work to make it, you know, a more level playing field for everybody. But I think at the end of the day, all we really want is a feeling of, sort of control over our careers and ha- happiness and our satisfaction. And I, I don't think you need to wait for huge power structures to change in order to do that. Um, you can either change the rules of the game or you can change how you play it. And changing how you play it is all about defining success on your own terms, like being honest with who you are, what you want and owning it. And, you know, that's eventually how I came to terms with that environment, which is, yeah, getting a management good in the moment because that's what my peers are doing and that's what I'm supposed to want. But if I'm going to be unhappy, um, you know, I, so in the book, I suggest orienting around well-being instead of winning. And that really, uh, it lets people account for their own individuality when they're designing sort of the, their, their life and how their career fits in. Because honestly, for, for so long, 15 years, I was working for things I didn't necessarily want. I was just following a script of what I was supposed to want. And that's really what I mean by, you know, taking a step back and making sure, you know, you're the author of your own story. Yeah, I think it gets, it's easy. And again, I think a lot of this I felt trapped to earlier in my career, but still even right now, because comparison is is real. You look at what your peers are doing, or maybe that person that you're kind of competing with because you Mm -hmm. want to get that next role. And you can get really caught up in goals that aren't your own goals. Like that become shoulds. I I know early on in my career, I had, you know, after my first few promotions, the next one, I didn't necessarily want to do it all, but I felt like, well, that's the only way that you're going to get ahead. That's Mm -hmm. the skill or role that you need to have, even Mm -hmm. though it's not where I brought the most value, but again, it was the most expected one. Well, you have to do right. this to get to the role of this. Right. Okay. Well, that, that does it have to be that way? Like, why do you think we're so cemented in, in some of these um, systems or in some of these ways of doing things? Like it's, it's so interesting to bring it back to 
just the industrial revolution in that era and knowing that today, even though the landscape is dramatically different, mm-hmm. that we still have not altered things. Like what the heck? We have changed like the type of shoes that we wear, the cars that we drive, everything, but yet we we just are ignoring this one. Yeah. Well, I think that's human nature really. Um people get comfortable in a certain way and momentum builds and just keeps going in that direction. And then you know inertia sets in. And I think it's hard to step out and see the bigger picture, to be fair. Um, so for example, a friend of mine read my book and she was dealing with this issue in her company. Now she's the owner of the company where this woman, um, they wanted to promote her, but it was a similar situation. She don't want to like manage the whole team. So they were going to give it to this other guy, but they were concerned that he would undermine her. And she said to me after, so she had been struggling with this challenge and and she didn't know what to do about it. And then after reading my book, like she had this insight, like, oh, I'll just give her a raise commensurate with that position and I'll make them partners in decision-making, give them 50-50 weight. And if there's an issue, you know, she'll step in, but he'll do the day-to-day management of the team. And what she said to me was like, it was so weird. It didn't even occur to her that she could think outside that structure in that box. And I think that's a big part of it is, you know, another friend of mine, when I was explaining to her the premise while I was writing the book, she's like, well, then what would happen? It would be anarchy. Like you need people. And I was just like, it, it was, I was like, whoa, no one's saying you don't need people. I think change one we're sometimes so stuck in our own perspective, we don't see other ways out. And two, you know, if people can't see what you see from the bigger picture, it's scary. They, they think it's a threat. And so I think those forces combine and, and we just remain stagnant, which is why it's a mistake to wait for everything to change in order to be happy. You've got to just figure out, you know, right now today, how you can navigate in a way to make yourself happy. Yeah. So call to action would be for the individual, figure out how you can be that author of your own story or what makes you happy. And maybe a call to action to the leader is to challenge these systems, figure Mm -hmm. out, are they helping or hurting you? Knowing that the origin may not actually be relevant anymore or even prove a a valuable case to actually keep these systems in place. Or just know what your employees are really motivated by and try and give that to them instead of relying on, you know, what the system spits out as the reward. Sometimes people just want recognition and it doesn't have to be this like, you know, and sometimes people do want the big title, the big manage. Great. Like that should be available too, if that's what you want. But right now that's all we have. So expanding the scope of um, rewards and, and, you know, how you motivate and acknowledge your team can make a big difference. I know, um, I I really appreciate you just going into lean out. And for those that are just even curious, you know, go out there, like you, you have a great way of looking at how we can maybe assess and analyze our work culture, our role as leaders, how we look at our own aspirations and goals. But one of the things that we had talked about offline to bring in, because we don't often talk about this, you made the shift from the glamorous corporate world, right? Of Google and Facebook. And we know because if you aren't at those companies, those are oftentimes the companies that you would aspire to work for. So then how do you make that? Or let's talk a little bit about that transition from working for the big corporate organizations to then rolling into the land of entrepreneurship, which is 
definitely something that is, you know, shiny object, but it comes with its own host of challenges. Yeah. The grass is always greener for sure. (laughs) So the best way I've ever heard this play, I wish I remember where I heard it, but it just captures the journey from, you know, being in that world to starting your own thing. You, when you do that, you trade depression for anxiety. Best, most concise way that fully captures what this journey has been like for me. Because in that world, you know, I was safe. I was secure. I had a paycheck every two weeks. I had a really nice life. Like as the single mom of three kids, like I made a great salary in life for me and my kids. And I live in a great school district. You know, no matter how bad my workday was, that paycheck was there every two weeks. Yeah, I had benefits. All like I worked at Google and Facebook. I had the prestige, the massage appointments available, the food, like everything you could possibly want. And I have to say, I really did enjoy Google. I, you know, I grew up there. Some of my best friends in the world were from the time, you know, that I worked there. And there's a lot I miss about it. But there was this something inside of me was looking for something more. And I knew I had all this potential and talent in me that could not be expressed in that world. I was limited. And I think when I went to Facebook, part of me was searching for, you know, maybe a smaller company where I can make a bigger impact because I just understood there was a part of me that needed to be expressed that wasn't. And then at Facebook, it was like, haha, the joke's on you. You think this was the place for you? Well, like we have a whole, and I go into this story again in the book, but um, it really was a terrible experience at Facebook and it forced me to come to terms with you know, I was in a dark place and I was like, you know, who am I? What do I want? You know, I thought this would be the fix for those empty or void feelings that I had at Google, but it actually made them worse. So what is it? What am I really looking for? And, um, it really had to go through hell in order to make the commitment to change direction and take a huge risk by going and pursuing my dream, which was to write a book and speak full time to women. And this summer, I was still working at Facebook in 2017 is when I really decided I made that commitment. And I wrote the book proposal that summer while I was still working at Facebook, wake up like godly hours in the morning to work on it. And then when I left Facebook, I had already almost finished the book proposal. So I had proven to myself that I was taking this seriously and I ended up you know, pursuing it. And, and here I am three years later, almost exactly doing it, right? I have the book published. I've been speaking um, full-time now. <clears throat> and it's extremely rewarding. It's also extremely, extremely difficult to really, it's very risky. I'm not a financial risk taker. And I really put my life savings on the line to say, okay, I have like a year and a half to make a buck. Like th- that's the runway I had. I'm very fortunate to have had that, but you really like, it's not easy to just completely blow your life savings when you have three kids. And so um, it was a big risk and it comes with tremendous anxiety, a total uncertainty. You kind of question yourself all the time. Am I crazy? And I feel like I'm really on the other end of that sort of period The the, you know, the, I was going to call it the dark night, but that's a movie. I mean, like the uh, the, the, t- the term's not coming to me, like dark night of the soul, maybe that's what it was. Um, but it's not easy. It's been really tough. I wouldn't trade it for the world because I learned, talk about confidence. When you do something like this and you survive and you get through it, that's confidence because you start to trust yourself more. 
Um, so that's something no one can ever take away from me is, you know, this thing that I pulled off by myself on my own. Of course, I'd help from people like, you know, that supported me, not financially, unfortunately, but like, you know, in general, my friends or whatever. But um, when you do something like that, that confidence just is joy and it can't be taken away by anyone. So it's worth it. And I still feel like I'm in the beginning of the journey. I'm at the base of, I'm at the summit. Well, I'm getting all my terms confused. Like the bottom of the mountain. What do you call it? I don't know. <laughs> the base, the base, the summit, whatever. I'm at, I'm still at base camp. I know that's a good term <laughs> that I can use. So I have a lot more to climb, um, but it's definitely, you know, there are days I miss so much about Google and I know there were days at Google, I would be sitting in meetings, like really feeling like I was wasting my life. And so there's a trade-off. And as long as you're willing to accept that trade-off, I always tell women that ask me, like they're thinking of doing that, you know, kind of transition from corporate to entrepreneur. My advice is always to first work on what you want to work on before you leave that world. Like give yourself some space to try things. Um, just jumping ship is tough. Um, and doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but I think sometimes we think of it as an all or nothing and it doesn't have to be. Yeah. I love that. You know, the grass is always greener, but really thinking that you can try to do whatever you want now today, you don't have to just quit your job. And I mean, but this, but that also doesn't mean to stay at your job. You opened up talking about a lot of the reasons that people choose to stay in an organization because the benefits package, because of the salary, because of the, all of that security, of course, that makes sense. But how long are you willing to put off being happy? Because there's also, I've had a job where I've gotten great pay, but you know what? The, the, I guess the, consequence or that I've had with that great pay comes down in terms of low confidence, not feeling good enough, not mm -hmm. feeling like I'm valued or that I'm contributing or allowing myself to kind of see myself through the lens of that culture, whether that culture is even worthy of that, of applying that. And I think, how do you even get the courage to jump? Because that's, well, that's one of the biggest ones. Yeah. And that's kind of what I mean by don't just have this idea and quit because I think having some sort of creative goal, because the underlying problem is we're really relying on work to fulfill our need to be happy. And when our job sucks, we blame our job. But the truth is there are ways that you can take initiative of fulfilling your own needs that don't rely on work because then you're you're giving work too much power over your life. And it's hard. Look, I've been there. Work's made me miserable more times than I can count. But what I learned at Facebook was having that creative project, that book proposal, where I worked on it every morning. And look, I know it's, it's tough to find the time. I mean, again, I'm a single mom of three kids. I had an hour and a half commute each way. I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning and it was tough. But at the same time, having that thing I was creating increase my well-being and sense of security and in ways I never would have expected because I go into work and the slights and the undermining, all the terrible things that were happening suddenly didn't affect me anymore. Like I was like Teflon because I had this thing that I was making and it was like I was taking control back. I was going to be the author of my own story. This wasn't going to be how it ends for me. That's a tremendous sense of power doesn't have to be a book proposal. It could be any sort of project or goal 
that gives you a sense of control and ownership over your life. And I think if you're thinking of leaving that world to start your own thing, the look, what do I know? But my advice, because based on my own experience, I always feel like I have to caveat because it's not, you know, you got, you got to take everyone's advice with a grain of salt, including mine, but working on that while you still have the safety security of a, a job, one, it, it gave, at least for me, it made me take this pipe dream seriously. Because if I would have just left and then started writing the book, it would have been too anxious. And I, and I don't think I would have trusted myself, but showing myself that I was serious about it, not only just improved my day-to-day well-being at work, but it gave me the confidence to then make the jump. So that's my advice is to really don't think of it as an all or nothing right away, but to kind of dabble and create these projects in the direction that you want to go. And then once you get some momentum or you feel better or more confident, then then you can leave, you know, it's, it also helped me because I saved that money that I, I was sort of riding out Facebook as long as possible to, you know, use this money then to then start this other project. So there's, I think a lot of benefits to both. To, do, to trying to do both at the same time, at least for a short term. I think that's a great closing <clears throat> perspective, call to action, inspiration, if you will, to, you know, take the reins, you to just try and let go, maybe not jumping off the cliff, but like just slowly going and dipping your toe in. Mm-hmm. We, we can, where we close every single podcast with one final question. And I need to hear it from you, Marissa, what is your leadership habit for success? Oh gosh. Um, like, can you, uh, what, I'm thinking of my habits in general. I mean, I meditate every morning. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How long do you meditate for? I guess what benefits have you seen from meditation? Oh, well, going through my experience at Facebook turned me into a straight up Buddhist because I needed some way to like manage my emotions. And, and I felt so out of control. I kind of was turning to different things I could do to get a hold of myself and be in control of my own emotions. And so meditation sort of kept coming up. So at first I said, I was still working at Facebook and I promised myself I was just five minutes a day, no matter where I can get it. And that was my first small goal. And there were times I would have to go into a bathroom stall and lock the door and do it for five minutes because I knew if I didn't do it then, I wouldn't have time the rest of the day. So once I was doing that, then all of a sudden you know, it became more of a, then when I started writing the book proposal, I made it more of like my morning routine. So it started with five minutes a day. Now I I try and do 20 minutes a day, which usually ends up being 15. And I also try and practice it like in the car and lying for the grocery store. So it's, it's kind of like I pepper it in through the day, but I'm have pretty much a 15 minute dedicated time every morning. I love that. Again, carving out time for yourself figuring out what you need. I feel like even that habit brings our whole podcast to a close, just starting with us. How do we want to show up? How, what type yeah. of changes do we want to make? What type of leader do we want to be? But starting with meditation and kind of getting an awareness around where, how we're showing up in the world. Marissa, thank you so much for just coming on the Leadership Habit Podcast. I am so happy that I've got to interview you. So happy that I got to read your book. I'll look for the best friend necklace in the mail. And <laughs> hey, thank Oh, you one so more thing I want... Now. Yeah. I wanted to just let viewers know that I started my own podcast. Yeah, it's called, it's, yeah. 
It's called Nice Girls Don't Watch The Bachelor, which again is meant to be kind of lighthearted and irreverent in, in the title. I'm actually a huge fan of the show. Um, but it's on app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever podcasts are. So if people want to check that out, um, that'd be great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. Now, if you want to connect with Marissa Orr, you can go to marissaorr.com or follow her on Instagram. Connect with her on LinkedIn. Follow her on Twitter. Bonus, if you want to get more, she actually is a host of her very own podcast called Nice Girls Don't Watch The Bachelor, which you can find on your favorite podcast streaming services. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and purchase Lean Out. Her book was an excellent read. I found a lot of value in it. You can find it on Amazon or wherever your books are sold, but purchase Lean Out by Marissa Orr. And also, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Be sure to write us a review on your favorite podcast streaming service. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.